Hey folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Matthew Carlson, and each week I'll be bringing you conversations that will help grad students like you survive grad school and thrive in a post-grad school career. If you end up enjoying today's podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we talk about today. Without further ado, let's start the episode. Hey folks, and welcome to today's show. So, recently uh, I've had some conversations with folks on Instagram in the comment section of some posts about how academia oftentimes functions like a religious organization or a cult. Uh, There's a lot of in-group, out-group. There's a lot of sacrificing for the good of the cause. Um, And there's a lot of other dynamics that I think really align the the system of academia with other uh, kind of closed, perhaps slightly dysfunctional systems uh, like cults. So, and of course, I'm not the first person to say this. I believe the first time I heard academia associated with a cult was from the professor is in. So this is not like a new idea or anything that I thought up. Um, But in those conversations, I was thinking a little bit about uh, religious religious imagery and the idea of a sacred cow and what are the sacred cows in academia. And then more specifically, I started thinking about what are these sacred cows in academia that keep us from pursuing a career in industry? So that's what I'm going to talk about today. Four different, uh, what I call sacred cows, academic sacred cows that might keep us from pursuing a career in industry. So the first one is uh, fairly innocuous. And I think it's something that everyone can uh, relate to. And that's knowledge or the love of knowledge. So when you're getting a PhD, you're getting a a degree of philosophy in, you know, your given field. And the root of philosophy, more specifically, philosopher is lover of knowledge. And, you know, I think for a lot of us, we love the area of study that we went into. We love learning about it. We love learning new things. And we probably love applying that knowledge Uh, in other ways. And I think that in many ways, academia allows you to, you know, quote, drink from a fire hose, so to speak. Uh, you're, You're able to, as part of the job, particularly, you know, if you stay in research, but also if you get into teaching, you're consuming knowledge all the time. And I think there's potentially a hesitancy to leave that space for many people because you feel like you're going to be giving up on that lifestyle of consuming knowledge and learning. And, you know, this is something that I thought about too whenever I was choosing to exit academia. I knew I loved learning about my target area, which was children in the uh, child welfare system who are involved with child protective services and the outcomes that, that affects of abuse and neglect had on them in later life. And I I loved learning about it and getting to apply that knowledge, either in a research setting or clinically. Um, 
And so there, there probably were hesitations that I had when I knew I was emotionally ready to leave academia, but the, the part of me that loved knowledge and loved the part of academia that allowed me to utilize that love of knowledge really uh, wanted to stay there. And so for me, I think that was, you know, so to speak, an academic sacred cow was being able to live in an environment where you're able to just consume knowledge all the time as part of the job. And I think, you know, if we fast forward a bit to, to my life in industry and, um, and what I've learned about the lives of others who've gone to industry, yeah, there probably is a little bit of a slowing down of that consumption of knowledge. At the same time, you know, let's say you stayed in academia and you became a professor. Whenever you go further and further up that echelon, you become more and more incentivized to stay in your lane and to become an expert in one, maybe two areas. And you want to get publications in that area. You want to become known for being really established in that area. You want to get grants in that area. And changing lanes and learning about things that are not outside of your world are really not rewarded. And you don't necessarily have the opportunity to do that in the same way uh, that you did as a grad student. So I think for me, and I think for many others, even if you choose to stay in academia, you know, your the amount of time and energy that you're going to be able to spend learning these new things is probably going to go down. Um, now, if we go back over to industry, from what I've learned, there are lots of opportunities to keep learning. It's not necessarily as well facilitated as it is in academia all the time. And you may, it may not be as intrinsically embedded as part of the job uh, compared to like when you're a grad student or when you're, when you're a faculty person. Um, but there's still so much to learn. And it might be different kinds of learning. Like it might be learning, if we go into my field, now I'm a data analyst, it's learning new ways of using a coding language. So SQL is something that I use a lot. So getting deeper and deeper into my knowledge of SQL and how it functions. It could be learning a new coding language. It could be learning the infrastructure behind how data is warehoused in industry. So learning things like Snowflake and Teradata and kind of getting into the data science realm of things. And so, you know, I think no matter what field you're going to, there's still new ways of learning. Of course, though, it, it'll be different than when you were a grad student. So... That is academic sacred cow number one. So sacred cow number two is fame and notoriety. Fame and notoriety. So many people see the professors they work with. They see the people they publish. You know, you go to conferences, you see these superstars, and you get star starstruck and by them. And you may even get starstruck by the idea of becoming like them. And I think for me that that was a thing, probably more at the beginning of my time as a grad student. I think it waned as time went on. But I think that was something that I was attracted to 
um, you know, becoming, quote, famous and being well known for having, you know, created something or uh, developed some new insight. And I, I get the impression that many grad students, when they're thinking about going industry, feel like they are losing the race, that like race for fame and notoriety and, uh, you know, yeah, having, having like a, a big impression. And, you know, I think when I think about academia, you know, particularly now looking back on my time in academia, the academic world is so small, like there's so few people there doing the work. And once you get into industry, there's so many people, and some of them are massively talented. And it's really hard to comprehend the scale of fame and notoriety in industry uh, when you're so used to the the kind of the big fish in a small pond effect of fame and notoriety in academia. And, you know, I think if you are thirsty for fame and notoriety, I think there's definitely an equivalent um, path that you could take in industry to get there. You won't have that small fishbowl effect though, right? So you, you'll be in a really big fishbowl, unless of course you go into some like small aspect of industry and like you get your niche and uh, you become well known in your niche. Um, so I think, I think if the academic sacred cow that keeps you from, from exploring the idea of going industry is fame and notoriety, I think something to be aware of is just that you can always get it in industry. And frankly, industry is where the real fame and notoriety is. Uh, you know, of course, we all know Einstein, but there's only so many Einsteins that are super well known in science. Um, you know, most people who become well known for the work they do are actually over in industry. Um, so Anyway, that's academic sacred cow number two. I don't think that's probably as much of an of an issue uh, as number one for people in terms of keeping them from going industry, but definitely something that was in my mind as a grad student, although it, it left the further I got on. just didn't sound as interesting as I thought it did initially. So the third sacred cow of academia, third of four, is power and influence. Power and influence. So this is, of course, related to fame and notoriety, uh, but a little bit different. So power and influence. And so the ability to influence the minds of people, the ability to have power over the course of, uh, you know, a research lab or uh, a field that you're studying in. You know, I think kind of like fame and notoriety, this was something for me that I found interesting, appealing, and the the further that I got, I think the less interested I became in it. Um, but, you know, I had very small positions of power that I took, you know, I was president of this organization as a student. I managed the research lab when I was a grad student. I became a research scientist. I managed a small team of grad students and undergrads doing various things. And uh, yeah, you know, I think I think power and influence is kind of a double-edged sword because it, it 
it does sound appealing, and once you gain power and influence, it does allow you to accomplish things. But at the same time, I think if you're going to use a position of power and influence well, your role is really about serving those who you have power or influence over. And, you know, we, I think many people may experience poor leadership in academia in that respect, um, and that's unfortunate. But, you know, I think positions of power and influence are not all that they're cracked up to be, in my opinion. I think, um, you know, I think for me, my story was one of uh, becoming more humble over time, um, particularly after the birth of my son, which I know I talk about every now and then. Um, and I'll talk about that more in the in the next and last sacred cow point. But I think the idea of having power and influence is captivating. And I think it does captivate uh, people who want to stay in academia. And I think the the kind of free reign that many professors are given is potentially unique to academia. Um, I don't think it's always necessarily a good thing. I think many, you know, you may have examples. I know of examples of, of abuses of power and influence in academia. But uh, certainly the thought of attaining that is totally something that appeals to a lot of people. And I could understand why it's appealing. I think it's, like I said, it's not as simple as it sounds. Um, you know, every time I took a new position that had more and more influence or more and more quote-unquote power, uh, it was a ton more work. And I think it should be. Um, and of course, you can have power and influence in industry. Um, you know, it, it may look different. You may have to work longer to get it. Uh, but of course, if that's something that you're interested in, industry has, you know, areas where you can get power and influence. Um, you can take different leadership positions. Uh, but of course, it's it can be extremely competitive in industry for those positions, just like in academia. So again, that's not something that I really think holds sway over a lot of people, uh, particularly once they get further in their program. Um, and they, you know, maybe they get a little bit older, they gain a little bit more, uh, you know, perspective on life. I think, I think knowledge, the love of knowledge, and then the last one are probably the things that keep people alive in academia. So we'll go ahead and jump to the last one. And the last one is impact. And that can mean a variety of things. Uh, when I say impact, I think of having impact as like a thought leader. Um, so maybe you introduce ideas that become adopted in your field and, uh, you know, you're able to appreciate the fact that you had an impact in that area. And then I also think of impact on like the lives of people who, who could use impact. And so, you know, I think of my, my clinical days and the children and families that I worked with and, um, you know, the, the population that I studied and worked with clinically, the drive to have an impact there was, was pretty high. And that, that probably stayed high my whole time in graduate school. 
Um, and even after the birth of my son, this one was was one that I had to uh, intentionally let go of. Um, you know, because I had, you know, I had dreams of having, you know, a, like a wider impact or a bigger impact on at-risk children's lives. You know, whether that was going to be doing clinical work in that area for a long time, or training clinicians who are going to go work with them, or having some kind of research impact, discovering something or honing some uh, training that would allow them to uh, work through their, you know, the effects of abuse and trauma more effectively. So I think impact does trap a lot of people. Um, and I think that's for me. And of course, you know, I can only speak from my, from my point of view, but for me, that was one that, that it took a long time for me to let go of. Um, and I think, I think there's a couple things, there's a couple ways I think about it now when I look back um, and kind of like help myself be okay with the fact that I uh, walked away from a career that might have had impact on the lives of children and families that needed it. So I think the first thing I think of is what impact can I have now? So now I work in industry, I work in a healthcare uh, company. More specifically, we uh, work in health insurance and helping uh, low-income children and families access special um, insurance policies. Uh, and so, you know, I think the work that I do now, if I zoom out, I think it does trickle down to positive, positively affect the same uh, population in general, of course, not child abuse and neglect specifically, or uh, child protective services involved families specifically, but um, families who are lower income. So I think the work I, that I do now does still indirectly feed into the overall cause that I was hoping to address with my career when I was an academic. So that's one way that I think about it. The second way that I think about it is what would have my impact have actually been if I had stayed in academia? And so at, at the point when I decided to leave academia, I was a research scientist and I wasn't doing any clinical work. I was doing program evaluation and I was still publishing a little bit. Um, but, you know, if I had stayed in that lane, I probably would have gone more into research and, you know, research and teaching and probably stayed in that area of research. And I don't really know if that work would have helped children and families that much. You know, I think, um, I think the research work that we do, and of course this could be like, if you discover the cure for cancer, then, you know, you help a ton of people, of course. Um, but I think in the, the work that I was involved in, I know what needs to happen and it comes down to, uh, more legislative changes. Um, and it's, it, it involves a lot of difficult to move pieces of the system that children and families found themselves in. 
And, you know, I think the, the, the greatest impact I had was actually when I was a clinician working with children and families um, that were going through difficult times. And I don't think I would have necessarily gone back to that if I had stayed in as, as an academic. And so I think the impact that I was dreaming I would have is, was actually going to end up being a lot less. Um, and so maybe that's just me. I'm definitely the kind of person who dreams big and then pursues something wholeheartedly. And, uh, you know, dreaming big helps me push through tough times and pursue something with persistence, even if the reality of the thing is not as big at the other end as I had imagined. Um, but yeah, so in terms of having an impact, that's the second way that I think about it now is maybe the impact that I thought I was going to have wasn't actually going to be as big as I thought. And I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just trying to be realistic. Um, and then the third thing is redefining impact. Uh, so I think, you know, there are a lot of ways that we can impact the field that we want to. We can raise awareness. We can uh, donate money. If we get a good job in industry that makes a bunch of money, we can donate a bunch of money. We can volunteer. Many industry jobs will have better work-life balance than academic jobs. And uh, you may find yourself having time to volunteer to the cause that you were so passionate about as a grad student. Um, what are the other ways of doing it? You know that there are other ways. Maybe you end up writing a book for general audiences about your area and you end up touching the lives of people who uh, you wanted to research and study and maybe do clinical work with, um, but then you also create greater awareness um, for everyone else who might not be in that pool of people. You know, there are a lot of different ways that I think we can have an impact on the bottom line of whatever we were passionate about as a grad student and I think being open to redefining that impact instead of defining it as I was a scholar in this area that made an academic difference, um, thinking of it more in terms of like the actual nuts and bolts of what families need or, or whatever, you know, whatever cause we were interested in, what, what actually needs to happen to, to push things to the next level. Um, and who knows, maybe you end up going into the nonprofit space and doing work there. Uh, if that's where, you know, the, the impact that you were thinking of lands. And I know all of this is probably more geared towards, um, you know, probably a certain segment of grad students. Like if you, you know, there are probably people right now who are like, oh, my grad school wasn't really about making like a social impact so much. And I, I, I totally get that. Um, and so maybe this one doesn't apply to you as much. But I think for people who, who did feel at a personal level very connected with what they studied, there's uh, a great hesitancy to leave that behind. And I think, you know, thinking about what impact you can have in industry or whatever sector, maybe nonprofit that you go into, uh, maybe being a little more realistic about what impact you could have had as an academic and then uh, potentially redefining what impact actually means. I think those things can help. They can help reduce the size of that, 
that academic sacred cow and uh, the impact that it has on um, impact, uh, no pun intended, that it has on preventing you from being open to going industry. Because if, if there's anything that I would hope you take away from this, it's that, um, you know, and th this is not just my story, but on average, PhDs who go industry tend to have better work-life balance, better career satisfaction, higher salaries, and being able to get out of the mindset of anything but academia is a failure is a necessary step for a great job search in industry. So I hope this short conversation was something that you found valuable, and uh, I hope you have a great week. And if you like this, share it with a friend who could use hearing something like this. I'll see you all next time. Folks, thank you for tuning into the Grad School Sucks podcast. I hope you got a lot out of our episode today. If you did, please consider leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And be sure to check out the description of this episode for links to everything that we covered today. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Matt Carlson, and I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. See you all next time.